This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. Recently, a team of reporters at The New York Times produced what kind of feels like an optimistic break from the doom and gloom of climate news. Huge swaths of our country are turning away from fossil fuels as an energy source and investing in wind, solar, and other renewable energy. We're talking places like Texas and Oklahoma, once dominated by oil and gas, now building essentially new industries. The New York Times three-part series called The Energy Transition explores the speed, challenges, politics, and economics of this move toward newer sources of energy. You've already heard it. Climate forecasters predict a catastrophic future if we don't move away from sources like oil and coal, which are warming the earth at unprecedented speeds. But even with the growth in renewable energy use, there are some unanswered questions about the impacts of these alternative technologies. Our guest today is Brad Plumer, a New York Times climate reporter specializing in policy and technology efforts to cut carbon dioxide emissions. He's also covered international climate talks and the changing energy landscape. Brad Plumer, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you for having me. You write about um, this transition to clean energy, that it's happening faster than we might think. Can you paint a picture of your findings? You know, things are moving at such an astonishing pace. So just a few things. Renewable electricity globally is now expected to overtake coal by 2025 as the world's largest source of electricity. We keep seeing automakers openly talk about expiration dates for the internal combustion engine, talking about how they're going to make more and more miles go electric. An astonishing stat was this year about $1.7 trillion worldwide was going to be invested in clean energy technologies, wind, solar power, electric vehicles, nuclear batteries, compared with $1 trillion on fossil fuels. Mm. So the amount of money going into it is just staggering. And we keep seeing these records broken. You know, the, the International Energy Agency, for years, they would put out this forecast of how much wind, how much solar, how many electric vehicles they expect in the coming years. And every year, it would turn out that they just way underestimated the speed of the transition. So it's uh, it's something that's caught even the experts who study this for a living by surprise. More is being spent on clean energy this year than ever before, your team reports. What are some of the high-level actions that are actually driving this? So the two biggest things are, one, just the extraordinary fall in the cost of particularly wind, solar, and lithium-ion batteries uh, have just plummeted over the last decade. So that's really taken these from a niche energy source that everyone used to think was too expensive to something that now looks like it can be a very real and serious part of the energy mix. And then the other the other big thing is it, there's widespread concern about climate change around the world, and governments are putting billions, hundreds of billions of dollars of subsidies into a lot of these technologies in the hopes that they'll help cut uh, carbon dioxide emissions. 
Let's talk a little bit about government uh, investments. Last year, President Biden signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act, which promised to infuse nearly $400 billion towards clean energy efforts, the majority of it going to infrastructure. Can you share what some of that money has been used for so far? Yeah, so it was such a wide-ranging bill. It had tax breaks for everything from new wind and solar projects that sort of extended existing tax breaks, but also for factories that make solar panels in the United States, which we'd never really had before, uh, factories that built batteries for electric vehicles, and then a bunch of uh, sort of nascent technologies that have yet to get off the ground, like uh, clean hydrogen fuels, uh, technology that can capture carbon emissions from factories and power plants and bury it underground. So it just... Uh, through tax breaks at a wide range of technologies that uh, people think may be helpful for cutting emissions. And some of them have proven extremely popular so far. We've just seen an enormous number of announcements by companies that say they want to either shift manufacturing of batteries and electric vehicles to the United States or open up new factories to uh, produce solar components, which up until now have largely been made in China. So, uh, you know, when the when the bill was passed, uh, economists did their best to try to estimate the cost, and they figured it would be around $400 billion. Now there are some experts who think it could be upward of a trillion or more, uh, depending on how many projects get built in the U.S. Those incentives for corporations are pretty enticing. And I'm also thinking about for individuals moving towards renewable energy. It's just more affordable. I, I'd love for you to put into perspective for us the changes and just the sheer cost, for instance. It's not as expensive as it used to be to invest in solar panels for your home like it was 10 years ago. That's right. So the cost of solar panels has plunged roughly 90% since 2009. And that's around the world. So that's already making it much cheaper. Then there are these tax breaks that can defray, uh, you know, as much as a third of the cost of uh, installing these panels on your roof. But also the technology has gotten better and better where, you know, people can now pack more solar panels onto uh, your roof, uh, which means more electricity. And, you know, a bunch of companies have sprung up offering various business models for how to uh, sell this. You know, there are companies now that will basically install the panels with no upfront cost and then sort of lease it for you and, and defray that cost uh, by selling electricity. So it, it's really just been an explosion of, of business models. Uh, the costs have come down. And then these tax breaks have really encouraged a lot of people to go solar on the roof. Your team visited a few U.S. cities to see what this shift looks like up close. And one of those cities was Tulsa, Oklahoma, where a company called Francis Energy is based. And Francis produces vehicle charging stations. What did your team find there? Oklahoma's interesting because it has historically been a major center for oil and gas production. But, you know, over the past decade, uh, Oklahoma is also extremely windy, and it's uh, one of the best places in Earth on Earth to put up uh, uh, wind turbines uh, and wind farms. So they oh, have really seen an explosion of wind power uh, over the last decade, even though it's got, you know, a government that is not necessarily super excited about tackling climate change and has not uh, passed a ton of really strict rules encouraging uh, renewable energy. The economics just makes so much sense there. Uh, but in addition, it's it's seeing other things. It's seeing new uh, 
electric vehicle and electric bus startups. There's a large factory making uh, batteries there. And, you know, it kind of shows that even in places that you don't think of as traditionally green states, uh, people are embracing renewable energy just because the economics often make so much sense. You know, uh, what I'm hearing from you also is that um, something interesting about conservative opposition, because climate change has been such a hot button issue um, politically. But in this case, there's been a bit more bipartisan support. You actually featured a few Republican leaders who say it just makes economic sense to transition to clean and renewable energy, but they still aren't using the term climate change. That's right. And it's nuanced. Uh, In Washington, uh, the debate is still very partisan. The Inflation Reduction Act passed with zero Republican votes. It was very much seen as a Biden administration and a Democratic uh, project. Uh, But what we've seen since is that most of the, uh, you know, clean energy, clean manufacturing announcements that have taken place, the majority of those have actually happened in red states. And there are a lot of reasons for that. There's often more land available. Uh, Some of these red states actually do quite a good job in trying to clear away some of the permitting snafus and uh, have really embraced uh, things like electric vehicle manufacturing. So there are a wide range of reasons why a lot of this investment is going in red states. Uh, So you get this interesting split where oftentimes local leaders are very excited about uh, these investments because they can create jobs, they bring money into communities. uh, But you still, at the national level, see this uh, partisan split over the idea of climate change, over the idea of subsidizing clean energy. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see whether those investments on the ground start to shift that at all, or whether this just becomes uh, a permanent culture war that people have sort of strong opinions on that that are a little divorced from what's happening on the ground. I'm, I'm just wondering, and I, I'm not even sure if you could answer this, but if your reporting has found that, for instance, I'm thinking about conservative groups like the Heritage Foundation, which we know is actively campaigning in opposition to climate change action. If all of what, what you're seeing on the ground is it is it is it being eclipsed by the Heritage Foundation's actions, or do they actually have a stronghold on the hearts and minds of of people um, as these big investments are happening? So I, I think it's always mixed. Generally, you see state leaders often do welcome these investments. So you look at a place like Georgia, which, uh, despite the last election, is still you know either a pretty red, or at least a purple state. And the Republican governor there has very much embraced a lot of the uh, investments that have come in. Now, there is still, uh, you know, a a conservative viewpoint that says, well, look, if these alternative energy sources are getting so cheap and make so much economic sense, do we really need subsidies uh, to encourage them? So that's one argument uh, you often hear, and there's, there's debate around that about how much is needed. Um, And you do see the flip side where, you know, we write about some of the challenges that these projects are facing, community opposition, whatnot. Oftentimes that opposition is uh, very organic and it's, you know, people in communities who do not want wind or solar projects. But you also see examples um, and thinking of some of the offshore wind projects where you will see uh, conservative groups uh, oftentimes with ties to fossil fuel industries sort of jump in and try to uh, fan the opposition 
and contribute to that. Uh, so it's it's really kind of a mixed picture, and I don't think we know exactly how the next decade will play out. One of the really interesting uh, things that you write about is that, of course, this Inflation Reduction Act is spurring a burst of, of new clean energy industries across the country in some of the places you mentioned. One of the problems is a worker shortage. There aren't enough workers for the abundance of jobs? Yeah, that's something we've uh, talked to companies over and over about. Uh, you know, electricians, uh, that comes up often, that if we are going to be putting up all these new uh, wind and solar projects, if we are going to expand the electric grid and add you know thousands of miles of new transmission lines, if people are going to install... Uh, electric heat pumps in their homes instead of gas furnaces, or if they're going to put uh, rooftop solar on their roof, uh, we're just going to need thousands and thousands of electricians. Uh, And that's something where uh, the industry itself has sort of warned that there is a shortage. There's going to be a coming wave of retirements of people who are uh, ready to retire. And you know, there there are young people who are interested, but maybe not as much as we're going to need. Also, these are specialized jobs. When you're talking about an electrician, are there training programs as part of this influx of investment? There are training. It takes a few years to get fully licensed, so there is that delay. I talked to one solar company up in the Northeast that, you know, has been, they decided to start doing the training in-house, and they're training as fast as they can, but they have seen some of the wait times for rooftop solar increase by a number of months. I think it went from three months to around 10 months. Mm. That's how long people have to wait to get new rooftop solar panels just because they are uh, booked up. You know, the demand for rooftop solar is rising faster than they can train new electricians. Are these renewable energy industries robust enough to build industry as we know it in cities and towns? Like I'm thinking about the automotive industry in Detroit or the oil industry in Texas. Yeah. So, you know, it. if we were to move away from fossil fuels at a very rapid pace, I mean, fossil fuels have underpinned the U.S. economy for decades and decades. Uh, and they still do. They still provide the majority of our uh, energy needs, even with this shift. But it's going to mean huge changes for a lot of these industries. Uh, so we're already seeing this with automakers, where automakers are retooling some factories, closing some factories down so they could build battery factories elsewhere. It means often shifting to different states. Uh, You know, there has been concern among uh, some unionized auto workers that some of the jobs are migrating to states uh, where unions don't have as big a presence. Uh, So it's this big shift uh, with electric vehicles you know, the, the thinking is that electric vehicles actually take fewer workers right. uh, to uh, assemble and manufacture than traditional vehicles do. So that's a big shift. Um, and, and one thing we've reported on many times is even if there are lots of clean energy jobs out there, uh, and perhaps even more than there were fossil fuel jobs, they're not always in the same place. Uh, they're not always the same types of jobs. So those sorts of changes can be quite wrenching for for workers. Also, for all of the news about this growth in renewable energy, you are clear to say that fossil fuels are still dominating energy production at this moment. That's right. Uh, And it's still, you know, the change is pretty remarkable. Uh, I was 
about 15 years ago, you know, solar and wind were about 1% of the U.S. electricity mix. And hardly anyone had an electric car. Today, wind and solar are about 16%, about one-sixth of all electricity. So that's, you know, you can look at it and say, well, that's still small. Or you can look at it and say, well, that's extremely rapid growth. Uh, but for now, you know, fossil fuels do very much dominate. Uh, for things like wind and solar, even in places that have an enormous amount of renewable energy, they still very much depend on uh, natural gas plants or coal plants for backup when the wind's not blowing and sun's not shining. So figuring out how to uh, get past that is an enormous challenge. And, uh, you know, it's something that certainly the Biden administration wants to do very quickly. Climate scientists say we need to do very quickly. And it's it's not easy. Brad, I'm curious how the U.S. fares in the move towards clean energy compared to other countries, maybe like China and the U.K. Yeah. So right now, if you look globally, uh, China leads on pretty much everything. Uh, they uh, not only have by far the most uh, coal plants out there, and they're the biggest uh, greenhouse gas emitter um, by, a, by a large margin, but they're also building more solar panels than anyone else. Uh, I believe, uh, you know, more than twice as much as the United States, uh, more wind power, more batteries, more electric vehicles, uh, so they just sort of have everything. And right now, their emissions are still going up. It hasn't been enough to uh, push emissions down. But they are sort of uh, the giant in the global economy on clean energy. Uh, they manufacture you know, the vast majority of materials that go into electric cars, in solar panels. Uh, they sort of do everything. Um, Europe has historically been a little further ahead than the United States in cutting emissions faster in adopting renewable energy. But that's changing pretty quickly. Uh, the U.S. is catching up in a lot of respects, and particularly with the Inflation Reduction Act, pouring all of this money into clean energy, uh, you know, not only is it starting to catch up, but there's actually been concern in Europe that maybe we're pouring too much money into clean energy and starting to attract businesses and manufacturers to the United States. Are there any actions or ways of doing things in those other uh, parts of the world that, as a reporter, you're really interested in um, and seeing if the United States will follow suit? Yeah, one of the most interesting debates I covered in recent years uh, was looking at what was happening in Germany, particularly after Fukushima, they made this move to close all of their nuclear power plants. And, you know, nuclear power can be very contentious, but it also does not produce any carbon emissions. It doesn't produce any air pollution and can be a big, important source of, of clean energy. And, you know, that has caused a number of issues for Germany. They've had to rely more on coal, which produces carbon dioxide emissions. Um, you know, it has uh, made uh, energy prices uh, volatile at times. So in the U.S., we started to see in the uh, mid-2010s, a number of nuclear plants start to close. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a little bumpy. First states and then the federal government decided, you know what, this would be a bad idea. These nuclear plants uh, produce clean electricity. If we close them, they're going to be replaced by natural gas or coal that's going to push emissions up. Uh, and so both states and then eventually the federal government stepped in 
to uh, subsidize these existing nuclear plants. So that was one thing where, uh, you know, a lot of policymakers were looking at what was happening abroad, taking a look at what was happening at home and kind of learning a lesson there and, and moving in a different direction. Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, my guest is New York Times climate reporter Brad Plumer, talking with us about the speed challenges and politics of America's economy moving toward clean energy. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, a people's history from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how Black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns & Foster. To Stearns & Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials, like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at StearnsAndFoster.com. On NPR's Throughline... We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. And today we're talking to Brad Plumer, a New York Times climate reporter specializing in policy and technology efforts to cut carbon dioxide emissions. He and his colleagues created a three-part series examining the speed, challenges, and politics of the U.S. economy moving toward clean energy. The series is titled The Energy Transition. You know something else that you report on um, that I'd love to talk with you a little bit more about is for all of the growth in renewable energy, um, corporations are still building new coal mines and oil rigs and gas pipelines. Yeah, this uh, so this has become a pretty big debate in the U.S. Uh, among environmentalists and people concerned about climate change, there is often this discussion about what is the best way to tackle it. So do we build a bunch of clean energy and do we reduce the demand of fossil fuels and then they'll go away? Or do we actually need to block and stop the production of fossil fuels? And, you know, I I think I covered the Obama administration uh, when they were thinking about tackling climate change. And their view very much was you tackle the demand. You know, we get everyone into electric vehicles and then no one will need oil anymore and it will just go away naturally. So we don't need to worry about blocking drilling or, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, shutting down uh, coal mines and so forth. The Biden administration has taken a slightly different path where they have been under a lot of pressure from environmental groups to clamp down on new drilling. Uh, At the same time, they also face this pressure that if you are too aggressive about uh, clamping down on 
oil production, for instance, you could see uh, gasoline prices go up. Uh, so they've been walking this tightrope, and early on, I think they were a little more reluctant to crack down on drilling. You know, in recent uh, months, they've been a little more aggressive at you know reducing the number of leases they've been handing out for offshore oil drilling, and it's uh, you know it's a real tightrope that they have to walk because uh, you know it's it's been a truism for so long in politics that the price of gasoline at the pump has this outsized impact on how people think about politics. So you know I think by and large they've been trying to not let energy prices spike, but they also face this this pressure from you know a lot of their supporters. Also, what I'm hearing from you and what what is very clear is that our demand for energy is just so high, higher than it ever has been before. Yeah, and it's going to keep growing. Uh, And, you know, there's a bit of a debate among environmentalists, you know, do we need to maintain economic growth, but just do it more cleanly? Or do we actually need to rethink economic growth? I think, you know, the vast majority of people who work on this tend to think economic growth is quite good and it's, uh, you know, lifted people off poverty and we all like it. And there are ways we can do this cleanly. You know, we can build clean energy instead of fossil fuels and we can continue to have all the uh, things we love about modern life. But, you know, pretty much anyone looking at this and looking around the world will say energy use will continue to grow for decades and decades, not just here in the United States, but there are so many countries that use a tiny fraction of uh, what we have that have enormous number of people who, you know, can't even power a refrigerator And, you know, it's something that's uh, really important. Economic growth is just incredibly beneficial to people and energy access is very important to people. So finding ways to do that cleanly is, I think, one of the biggest challenges of the 21st century. One thing I'm interested in knowing about are upgrades to oil refineries, because I think I I was reading somewhere that so many of these refineries are really, really old and upgrades to them would actually offer efficiencies that would be good for our environment and cost overall. And I'm just wondering, did you at all find any indication that improving refineries is also a priority? Yeah, so this is one big question that hovers over the energy transition, is what role will there be for oil, gas, possibly even coal? Because there are technologies out there that could, in theory... Uh, allow us to keep using these fossil fuels, but do it with fewer emissions. So a big one is is called carbon capture. Mm-hmm. You basically uh, hook up, you know, some pretty complex devices to the smokestack of a factory or power plant uh, or refinery, and you capture the carbon dioxide that comes out. You use chemicals to strip out the carbon dioxide, and then you bury it underground. So the technology exists. Uh, It's been used for a long time, but it's always struggled to take off just because of high costs. And practicalities of it. Yeah. So, you know, it's one question. Are there going to be places where uh, it just uh, makes sense because uh, it's really hard to get rid of fossil fuels? You know, so possibly refineries could be one, but there are a lot of industrial processes, chemicals, uh, cement, steel, you know, right now we use an enormous amount of fossil fuels to make all these products. Uh, they're very important to modern society. So a question is, you know, would it make most sense to continue to use fossil fuels but find a way to do it without emissions? Or would it make more sense to, say, make 
hydrogen fuel with renewable energy and use that to produce steel. And a lot of this stuff is still unresolved. People are still working on it. You know, I think in the near term, there's not a ton of movement, but it's something that in the coming decades, you know, we may see more and more of. If you're just joining us, my guest is New York Times climate reporter Brad Plumer, talking with us about a three-part series called The Energy Transition, where he and his colleagues are examining the speed, challenges, and politics of America's economy moving toward clean energy. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox. Discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. <laughs> dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Today we're talking with Brad Plumer, a New York Times climate reporter specializing in policy and technology efforts to cut carbon dioxide emissions. He's also covered international climate talks and the changing energy landscape. He and his colleagues created a three-part series examining the speed, challenges, and politics of the U.S. economy moving toward clean energy. The series is titled The Energy Transition. You know, Brad, I want to talk a little bit about the electric grid because more broadly, the scale of true change, as your your team writes, is that um, we need to invest in remaking systems that power our country. But our electric grid is a bear. And I actually learned from your reporting that it's not even a true grid. There are several grids. Can you break this down for us, some of the problems with the current electric grid infrastructure? Yeah. So the electric grid we have was built up over a century. And this is the network of uh, big transmission lines that run from power plants to cities and then, you know, smaller distribution lines Uh, that run to our homes and businesses, Uh, you know, there are substations, other infrastructure on the way. So it's this enormously complicated system that stretches across the country. It's divided up into dozens of different areas where uh, individual utilities or regional grid operators will sort of oversee the system and try to keep it in balance. But one key aspect of this is that traditionally, it has been built around these central power plants. So these huge coal plants, huge nuclear plants, you know, pretty big natural gas plants, and takes electricity from those power plants and brings them to our home. So if we are moving to the system where we have more wind power, more solar power, those new types of power plants uh, have to be in pretty specific locations. Like it's very windy in the middle of the country. It's not very windy in the southeast So, you know, they tend to be in specific locations, and there are just more of them. You need many more wind turbines and solar panels to replace a single natural gas plant. 
So if you start to move toward more renewable energy, uh, you need more transmission lines, more wires, and you need them in different places. And different people come up with different estimates, but I've seen estimates that we may need to double or triple the size of the nation's electricity grid by 2050 if we want to cut emissions down to zero. That just sounds like the remaking of entire cities and (laughs) areas. I mean, I'm just thinking about what that actually means for our topography and infrastructure of cities and towns throughout the country. Yeah, it's a massive challenge. And building transmission lines has proven to be one of the most difficult infrastructure tasks. There's a great example where you know, a group of energy companies basically wanted to create a massive wind farm uh, out in New Mexico and bring that electricity to Phoenix and to Southern California. Um, you know, we're talking several Hoover's Dam worth of electricity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took 17 years to wow. uh, get that project approved because it crossed so many jurisdictions and, you know, different counties had different uh, views on where the power line should go. At some point, you know, they ran into concerns about environmental impacts, so they had to change the route. But, you know, that one project took uh, nearly 17 years uh, to get approval to go through the permitting process. And so, you know, it shows that this very complex system does not turn on a dime. It's uh, very hard to build these lines. They can be very contentious. And then, you know, it does increase the complexity of the system when you have more wind turbines, more solar panels on the grid. You know, before anyone builds a new power plant, the people who oversee the grid have to make sure that it won't bring down the system, that that the whole grid can stay reliable. So it's creating this added level of complexity that, you know, if, if we don't figure this out, either through policy, through better approaches, you know, could really slow down the uh, transition to cleaner forms of energy. You ask a pretty straightforward question. Will the grid be able to handle all the new electric cars, for instance, many of them charging at night? Yes. And, you know, what a lot of experts will tell you is, in theory, yes, (laughs) absolutely. Uh, In practice, it could be tricky. So, you know, just taking electric cars... One potentially obvious thing we could do is not have everyone charge all at once when they get home at 5, 6 p.m. You know, if the electric cars are just going to be sitting in your garage or at a charger all night, uh, it should be possible for utilities to stagger when those cars are charged. And you wouldn't have to build as many power plants that all flip on at 6 p.m. to charge all those electric cars. You know, one of the things that you write about with the electric grid is that in some places, companies that build a new power source have to also pay the cost to expand the grid um, so that they can connect. And that becomes unaffordable. Can you talk about the sheer barrier around just the cost of doing that? Yeah. So the electric grid we have is running out of spare capacity. And the way we tend to upgrade the grid now is a developer will come along with a new solar farm or wind farm. They'll make a request to connect. Uh, The grid operator will study it. They'll see what upgrades need to be made. And then they'll charge that wind developer or solar developer. And these might be a few million dollars. It might be a couple hundred millions of dollars, depending on the upgrades. So that, you know, those costs are rising 
very fast. And there are certainly some people who think this is a little bit of a haphazard system that we should be uh, coming together as a society and planning proactively for all the renewable energy that we know is coming online, sort of spreading out those costs across everyone who will benefit. Uh, And there is some precedent for that. You know, Texas, back in the 2000s, quickly realized it was very windy out in West Texas, but there weren't really enough power lines uh, to bring that power to population centers. So they came up with a plan to sort of proactively build a lot of transmission capacity out to that area. And it was a big factor in Texas becoming, uh, I believe, the biggest by far uh, wind uh, states in the United States. Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, my guest is New York Times climate reporter Brad Plumer, talking with us about a three-part series called The Energy Transition, where he and his colleagues are examining the speed, challenges, and politics of America's economy moving toward clean energy. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Something that you've been touching on all throughout our conversation is uh, some of the opposition um, in parts of the country to growth in clean energy, specifically wind turbines and the land, the sheer amount of land needed. Um I mean, essentially, you're talking about nimbyism, not in my backyard. And communities throughout the country have vocalized how much they're against solar farms and wind turbines and new power lines. Can you share the story of one of those places? You reported on Sears Island in Maine. Um, Tell us a little bit about what the opposition there looks like. Yeah, so this uh, relates back, you know, if... We're going to build out a lot of wind and solar. It's going to be in new places that have often never really had energy infrastructure before. So the Northeast is a great example. There are a lot of efforts underway to try to build offshore wind uh, off the coast. But this is, by and large, an area that just doesn't have a ton of energy infrastructure. It's not like the Gulf Coast where they have a ton of oil platforms. You know, this is a place that hasn't really seen it before. So... You run into a fair amount of opposition. Uh, You know, in some parts uh, down uh, near Massachusetts and Rhode Island, we've seen opposition from fishing groups that have historically operated there. And that's people's livelihoods. And they've often been uh, very resistant to new offshore wind projects uh, or at least tried to find some compromise so that doesn't disrupt their fishing operations. And then, you know, in Maine, 
there are different sources of opposition. But uh, one thing one of my colleagues who went up there found was that there were some environmental groups who were quite worried about the impact in the local area. Oftentimes it would just, you know, these are very beautiful places that people don't want to go and see a giant wind turbine Mm -hmm. uh, right in their face. What is it actually like to live near a solar or turbine farm? Can you describe it? Uh, There are solar farms that you can barely tell that they are there. Wind turbines are a little uh, harder to miss, and it depends how close you are. But, you know, people complain about things like uh, it can cast shadows. Some people say uh, they can hear the noise. Uh, You know, it depends how close you are. Oftentimes, you know, people don't really like to look at them. Uh, And it varies. You know, one thing I should say is that obviously with the growth of solar energy and wind energy around the United States that we have seen, there are lots of communities that have no problem with these projects. Mm. And, you know, by and large, when a solar wind developer goes into a community, says, you know, we'd like to build this, uh, you know, we'll we'll pay the people that we're building on their land and it just gets built. Uh, that tends not to be a news story. <laughs> we we don't report as much on the successes. Uh, we tend to report on the things where there are, you know, bitter fights, opposition. So uh, that sometimes does skew perspective. But, you know, there are a lot of uh, communities that have different complaints uh, for a wide variety of reasons. And, you know, they don't always prevail, but we are seeing more and more opposition and we are seeing uh, more communities that say, you know what, we just don't want this here. You know, during most of this conversation, we've been talking about um, these very specific types of energy sources, wind, solar, battery powered. Are there other energy sources that are also being brought to scale or being tested that you're you're interested in exploring? Yeah, definitely. So one is nuclear power, which, uh, you know, I am I'm reporting on and writing on now. It's uh, already, you know, it's been around for decades. It currently provides about 20 percent of our electricity as is, mm. uh, but faces a lot of uh, challenges going forward, not least that attempts to build new reactors most recently have run into big cost overruns, uh, big delays. Uh, you know, the the most recent two reactors uh, built in Georgia, which are almost nearing completion, cost about $35 billion. And, you know, there are some people who will say they are uh, overregulated, but either way, they're very tightly regulated, uh, which means they need specialized components. Um, they need to follow very rigorous safety standards. Again, there's a debate over, you know, whether that's gone too far. But it, these are big, complex projects, and uh, they're so large that, you know, any delays just mean that uh, your costs go way up. Um, the other one I reported on recently that I thought was really interesting was geothermal energy. Mm. And this, uh, you know, we've known for a long time that there's an enormous amount of heat under the ground. And there are a few lucky places around the world, uh, like Iceland, parts of California, that can dig down and they find these underground hot water reservoirs and they just tap that heat and they create uh, clean electricity that runs 24-7. The problem is it's always been very limited uh, in where that is. So it it only provides a small share of U.S. electricity. Um, But, you know, most recently I wrote a story about people who are taking new drilling techniques from the oil and gas industry and trying to find ways to access heat 
pretty much anywhere in the country. Um, they're starting out west because that's where it's closest to the surface. But, uh, you know, I, I followed one company, Fervo, that is using fracking techniques to basically uh, drill down into the ground, reach the hot granite, and then inject water into there to create hot water that can produce electricity. Oh, that's interesting. So, yeah, yeah that's also, you know, it's early days. We'll see if they can... Uh, figure it out and if they can bring the cost down so that it it makes sense to do this on a truly uh, large level. But it's one of the promising ideas out there for this issue of what else might we need besides wind and solar. Right. And and also, there's probably, I mean, you have like a list 10 pages long of potential energy sources, but it's about bringing those sources to scale. That is also the biggest challenge, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's a it's a huge challenge. And so, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, combined with other funding, combined with uh, efforts at the Department of Energy, are trying to scale up a bunch of different new energy technologies. Uh, so, you know, in theory, you can create this sort of clean hydrogen fuel uh, using wind and solar power. And hydrogen is great. You can basically burn it like a fossil fuel. Um, it has some drawbacks, but it's it's pretty versatile. Uh, but you need to figure out, okay, how do we bring down the cost of actually making it? And then how do we transport it? We'll need to build new pipelines and we'll need to find people who actually use it and get them to buy it. And so, you know, standing up a whole industry like that is very complicated uh, and trying to do it quickly is uh, really difficult. But it's something that you know, the, the Department of Energy is currently actively trying to uh, create a big hydrogen economy because they think it could be a helpful clean energy source in the future. Well, you and your team's reporting certainly feels like it feels like hopeful news. Does it feel that way to you as someone who's deeply steeped in it? Yeah, I would say reporting on climate and clean energy, it's always this mix of uh I don't know if it's optimism and pessimism or <laughs> enthusiasm and cynicism, but it, it's a balance where there are so many exciting things happening in the world of energy, in the world of climate. There are so many smart people working on ways to cut emissions, to cut pollution, to tackle climate change. Uh, it's incredible the amount of innovation that's out there. Uh, companies, businesses, scientists, engineers, all these people working on incredible things. But, you know, if you look at climate change and listen to scientists who say we need to completely remake the global economy to stop climate change by, you know, sometime around mid-century, right. that's just such an enormous task. And do it even as we know that there are all these countries that need much more energy to lift themselves out of poverty and, you know, uh, enjoy energy access. Uh, it, it's such a massive challenge that uh, it's easy to look at that and say, okay, well, wind and solar have grown to 16% of our electricity mix. That's still a pretty small fraction, and it's not enough to stop climate change. So I, I, I feel like reporting on this, and I think this was part of why we did this series, there's this real mix of uh, it's incredibly hard. There are exciting things going on, you know, all the efforts that are underway right now probably aren't yet enough. It's unclear if there'll ever be enough, uh, but there are a lot of people out there really trying uh, to make a huge dent 
Uh, so it's it's a mix, uh, which is why it's it's an exciting area to to report on. Brad Plumer, thank you so much. Thank you. This was great. Brad Plumer is a climate reporter for The New York Times. He's part of a team of reporters that recently published a three-part series called The Energy Transition. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Sam Brigger. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorak, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Lauren Krinzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Seth Kelly, and Susan Nyakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Thea Chaloner directed today's show. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.